You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 2 of a fanfiction story titled Spice, written by today's guest fanfiction author, Aimeo. Kirk's hand is tingling. It's something of a surprise to find that he's aware of this small fact, buried as it is beneath the strata of chaos that have layered over the general maelstrom of his daily life. But it's dark now, and he's alone with far too many thoughts clamoring for attention inside his aching skull. And one of them, a particularly vociferous and insistent one, the Admiral Comac of thoughts, if you will, is demanding that he pay attention to the network of nerves that stretch beneath the skin of his right hand because they are alive with remembered touch. The ship is as silent as a ship at warp can ever be, which is to say that the engines thrum on the limits of hearing, vibrating through the fabric of the hull and into the bulkheads and across the air that touches them. The hint of voices carry imperfectly through the walls as assorted crew pass along the corridors outside. Things that are supposed to reassure their human masters that they're working efficiently, periodically, go beep. The air filtration system rumbles, obstreperilously. The replicator sighs, water sings in buried pipes, and beneath it all, outside the range of human hearing, but available to a man who knows his ship like a father or a lover, is the hum of life living itself, minute by minute. It is usually comforting. Tonight, it tap dances along the fine line between oppressively silent and shut the hell up. His hand is tingling. A portion of his rational mind insists that the gesture could not have been intentional. It must have been a reflex action, automatically applied and then impossible to unobtrusively correct. There is just no way that Spock deliberately reached for his captain's hand. Even if he was distracted by the fact that Kirk was temporarily inhabiting the body of Janice Lester, there is still no way that Spock intentionally wrapped his fingers around the wrist of an unknown woman in full view of Dr. McCoy three security officers, and someone who looked like the captain. It just didn't happen. It must have been an instinctive reaction, born of the fact that Kirk was trapped in a body without physical strength, and four men were bearing down on them, one of whom had already demonstrated his ample capacity for violence. They're a logical race now, but Vulcan society is founded on the principle of the warrior caste. Buried beneath that rational exterior, there must be a remnant of the inherent drive to protect the vulnerable. It was a visceral throwback reaction, like the thousand times the first officer had illogically thrown himself into harm's way to protect the captain, and there can't be any significance to it. So why didn't the hand stay fixed around his lower arm? Why did it snake downwards from its initial encircling grip to close around his fingers? Why did it stay there for almost half a goddamn minute? Why didn't it spring away from his at the first press of flesh on flesh as though Kirk's skin burned? Why won't his hand stop remembering the touch of the long, cool fingers brushing against his? To the north, south, east, and west four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Some of you might remember that a few episodes ago, I recommended Aimeo's Star Trek fanfiction story, Spice. Well, I am pleased to announce that our special guest author today is Aimeo. Aimeo has been a member of AO3 since 2011. She has posted a total of six fan fictions on that site for Star Trek The Original Series, which, of course, includes the television show and the movies. She grew up watching Star Trek Original Series reruns and saw some of the original movies in the cinema, but never really considered herself a proper fan until she discovered the Kirk Spock ship which made the characters make much more sense, in her opinion. 
Imeo will argue that the Kirk-Spock ship is canon until the cows come home, but believes Roddenberry deliberately left it ambiguous with the footnote, and she loves it all the more for that. She also adds that her fanfiction story Spice was supposed to be a quirky little PWP in response to a very clever prompt from Talara. But Imeo doesn't do brevity, and it turned into a 275,000-word four-part angst-fest masterpiece, and she loved writing every minute of it. At one point, a reader printed and professionally bound a copy of that story for her, and to this day, that is one of her most prized possessions. Imeo, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about fan fiction with you. Me too. I love your story. I love Star Trek. I love fan fiction. So we're going to have a great time today. Is there anything you'd like to correct or add to your bio before we get started? No, I think you've done perfectly there. Yep. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. Well, I always like to start at the beginning of everyone's fan fiction journey. So I was hoping that you could tell us about the time when you first discovered fan fiction. I can remember it exactly. It was early 2011. I had just got out of a relationship that was not good times for me at all. And I was reading a Cracked.com article about fan fiction. And they were being a little bit not disparaging but but not necessarily very positive about it and there was a picture in it and it, I, I found out afterwards it's Cosmic Bath by Anki and if you don't know this picture it's just so very beautiful it's Kirk and Spock sitting in a bathtub looking at each other with love in their eyes and I saw this picture and went wow something about that really speaks to me and they had linked that the article had linked to I think it must have been I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong um Farfalla's webpage where she collects her own KS fan fiction and I just started reading and the more I read the more I went this makes so much more sense to me and from then on I discovered the KS archive I found AO3 and I just I was I was addicted by that point from then on I can't see them in any other way except as lovers. It just makes so much sense to me if you just see all of that tension between them as a precursor in the original series to some kind of romantic involvement and then from the films onwards. It's the only way I can I can read them now. I agree with you 100%. A couple of years ago, I went back and I re-watched the entire original series, yes. which I hadn't done in years. And I'm sitting there watching the interactions between Spock and Kirk when they're not actually speaking to each other. They're just looking at each other on screen. And I turn to my husband and I go, what the hell is going on here? How did I not catch this? And how do you explain half of that stuff if they're not actually in love? I mean, the Corbomite maneuver. When I went, and again, I went back, I did exactly the same thing. I went back once I discovered KS, I went back and rewatched everything and I went, Oh, oh, okay. How did I not see this before? But you know, the, that look that they share in the Corbin might maneuver it and in Mary, whenever one of them gets a girlfriend and the other one just goes into massive sort of heartbroken sulk. It's just, it's, it's absolutely in everything between the two of them. I just, it's, I can't not see it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. You just can't not see it. And it just makes the KS ship and the fan fiction that we get to consume so much more fun when you have that background of it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when you were first discovering fan fiction and reading it online, was it all Star Trek fandom fan fiction? It was to start off with, yeah, because I was just so consumed by it. And it was just, it was almost like just this whole part of my personality started to emerge. I've moved into a couple of other ships since then. I'm really not that involved in fandom anymore, but I definitely want that to change again when life gets a bit less crazy. AO3 was a great factor in kind of expanding my horizons and in terms of fan fiction and, and different ships. But initially, my only exposure was to the KS archive, which is just, oh, I, I love the KS archive. It was just, I could get lost in it for days. It's where I discovered some of my all-time favorite fic. Just some absolutely magnificent stuff is on there. But, you know, what? it was really only once I, I sort of I got onto AO3 that I started to think, actually, maybe I could be a little bit less monogamous in my shipping here and discovered stuff like John Locke and Maverick Iceman. Why don't more people like Maverick Iceman? Top Gun is the most slashy film ever made, I think. 
but there's really not that much fic on it. And I will write some someday, just not yet. Yes, that fandom is waiting for you to return to AO3, Imeo. Desperate for it. <laughs> desperate to start writing. Although I'm not sure I could top that my, my all-time favorite Maverick Iceman fic that's on, on AO3. I, I'm not even sure I want to try, but I kind of, I just I think the world needs more of it. So, well, if you know, if you can't wait around for other people to do it, you just have to do it yourself, Imeo. That's right. That's absolutely correct. You have one of the most beautiful writing styles that I have ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's really kind. Yes. I was hoping that you could tell us what inspired you in the first place to become a writer. I've always written. I can't remember a time when I wasn't writing. I mean, it, I'm literally talking going back to the age of four or five when I was learning how to write. I've always told stories. I did have a go at writing a novel when I was, I don't know, about seven or eight. It's really not very good as, as you know, shock horror, seven-year-old writes novel and it's not very good. But <laughs> I was so proud of it at the time. I was ridiculously proud of it. I was showing it to everybody. I couldn't imagine what my life would look like if I had to stop writing. It's just, it's so fundamentally a part of who I am. I just, I couldn't not do it. It's, this is, you know, this this is writing that's sort of evolved for literally decades of, of practicing it. So you're very kind to say that you like my writing style. That's really kind of you. It's, it's literally decades in the making. <laughs> well, it certainly feels like it's decades in the making because it's so complex and so poetic. The way that you string these words together, I am just blown away. Oh, thank you. You're really kind. Thank you. <laughs> you're so welcome. I imagine that you probably started writing fan fiction of your own after you discovered the reading of the fan fiction online with the different archives. Yes. Can you tell us about the time that you wrote your first piece of fan fiction and what was that like? I think I sort of, I, I knew as soon as I found fan fiction that I was going to end up writing it at some point. There's basically no avoiding it. The first piece of fan fiction I ever wrote was a sort of a, a very reflective kind of angsty piece called Crying How Bright. The title's taken from the Do Not Go Gentle Into That Dark Night. And it was really, it was about, as, as much fan fiction is, fixing something in canon which annoys me intensely. And that being Generations, the movie. I have a fairly wide tolerance for, for messing about in canon. But Generations, quite apart from the fact that it explicitly seeks to answer where are they doing it with no, Kirk was totally straight in a way that makes no sense to me at all. But it, it also, I mean, it's it's the time-wise, it has him leaving Starfleet before Wrath of Khan. And it, that, that, that kind of undermines everything that makes Wrath of Khan such an amazing movie. But yeah, so I was intensely irritated by Generations. And I kind of wanted to answer some of that in, in a character-driven piece, which was the assumption that by this point, Kirk and Spock had been in a relationship for most of their adult lives. And they were sort of coming to the end of, uh, well, Kirk's certainly coming to the end of his career, and it it sort of speaks to that part of of generations, which I could kind of understand. You know, the the whole well, what makes Kirk Kirk in his eyes anyway? I mean, we all know Kirk would be Kirk no matter where he was, but in his own eyes, what makes him him if he's not giving his life to Starfleet, and how does that impact his relationship with Spock? And yeah, it's 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 kind of a surprising surprise, surprise, an angsty little piece, but. Yeah, I, that was the first piece of fan fiction I wrote. And from there, I kind of wanted to go into answering those. Oh, I don't know if you've come across them. And gosh, I've forgotten. This is this is terrible. This is my absolute brain just just doesn't hold information anymore. The the series of, of accompanying books that, that were written to go with the original series where they, they really play up the relationship between Kirk and Rand. The total non-relationship. I mean, that was just right. Oh, I I don't want to hate that character. There's so much going on, kind of outside of the actual canonical on-screen stuff that makes me really, really want to redeem that character. But she's so very irritating on screen, and there is no way that there's any chemistry between them. But these books are trying to write that chemistry in, and I was reading them going, no nonsense. So I decided I was going to write my own accompaniment to that series. I think I got about four episodes in before I went, no, this is really too hard and sort of stopped doing that. I come back to it at some point. It was a lot of fun. And soon after that, Talara posted her prompt and I went, oh, that'll be fun. See how long that takes me four years later. <laughs> Something Was it four? Was it three and a half? I can't remember. Anyway, it was a ridiculous amount of time later. I finally got to the prompt and finished it. <laughs> 
was that prompt part of some sort of Star Trek fan fiction event that was going on? Or did she just post it on a website that you happened to see? Or how did that happen? No, we were part of KS fan fiction group on Facebook, of all places. And I've, I've met her a couple of times in real life. I would consider her one of my, my first and dearest fandom friends. And she had this this prompt that she wanted to explore. And she said, you know, anybody interested in it? And I went, oh, yeah, I'm interested in that. And very, very quickly realized this was not going to be a quick little PWP. Who was I kidding? I never do quick little PWPs. The PWP I wrote is about 8,000 words long anyway. Um, <laughs> No, and I love that. I love that because I I have such a hard time going from the prompt as it was originally to what came out of that prompt. So I cannot wait to dissect that in a few minutes here. I have a question about that for you. But going back a little bit to Star Trek. Now, I know that we talked a couple of minutes ago about watching Star Trek and noticing the interactions between Kirk and Spock and how could you not, right? Of course. So I was wondering, how did you get into Star Trek in the first place? I know you mentioned that you watched the show as a as a child. Yeah, it was it was always on. I was, uh, I, I know we must have started watching Next Generation when it launched because I would have been early teens by that point. And, you know, my, my dad was a big Star Trek fan. I mean, he still is. That makes it sound like he is no longer with us. He definitely is. And and we would always have watched Star Trek when it was on the television back in the those those sort of grim and awful days of the 80s when you had to wait until the television shows were actually programmed for you. You couldn't just binge watch on Netflix or something so if it was on television we would watch it and I remember seeing Wrath of Khan on the television I remember seeing the motion picture on the television and it was just sort of there you know and we were just fans as a family so I'm quite certain I've never discussed it with my father I'm quite certain he would in no way endorse the idea that Kirk and Spock were lovers Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm not going there with him but it was just something that we would have watched and discussed, really, and, and just, you know, it was a part of my life that I never really questioned. You know, other sci-fi franchises were available in our household. I just never really latched on to those in fan fiction the same way. That makes so much sense. I had a similar upbringing in my home where my parents were Star Trek fans, and yeah. so it was always on. We had all of the movies on cassette tape. And as a kid, I would watch them over and over and over and over. And I had the biggest crush on Spock. I thought he was the bee's knees. And uh, my little seven-year-old heart just couldn't handle it, you know? (laughs) It is Spock, though, isn't it? I mean, I know Kirk is supposed to be the sex symbol, but they just absolutely missed on that when they had Spock. You know, Kirk's great and all, don't get me wrong. I'm sure he would be a great person to have a good long chat about. But, you know, Spock. Spock is the sex symbol. Oh, and he's so fascinating. And everything that he does is just, yes. wow. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? He's, it's, I don't know. There's, it's that aura that he has. He is so interesting. And he just, he absolutely commands your interest. Yes, I agree with that. And that kind of launches us into the next question that I had. Because I am endlessly fascinated by the Jim Kirk and Spock ship anyway. Yeah. Because those two characters are so different from each other. So I was hoping that you could tell us what you love most about those characters together. And why do you think the fans out there love shipping those two the most out of any Star Trek ship? Well, I think it's got to be something to do with the fact that they are on paper an unlikely couple. But when they are together, they complete each other. I know that a lot's been said, and I think Roddenberry himself said about how he'd envisaged Kirk, Spock, McCoy as the triumvirate, and they're all sort of, they're, they're each representing some kind of universal part of humanity. And I totally get that. And I have read a bit of Kirk, Spock, McCoy fan fiction, and it just doesn't work for me at all. I just can't read McCoy in the same way as I would read Kirk and Spock. He just doesn't feel available to that kind of shipping to me at all. Whereas the two of them, it is almost as though they are not quite complete without each other. A lot's been said about Kirk's kind of hot-headedness. I don't see it as hot-headedness. I see it as integrity and passion. And that drives everything he does. Whereas Spock is that more 
sort of cool and and logical and let's think all of this through and the pair of them complement each other like yin and yang whereas you know, kirk is is that side of spock that he can't quite get in touch with by himself but is an absolutely fundamental part of the human side of spock that he's he's struggled with all the way through the three series of the original series it's that thing that he is aware he's missing but he's trying to stifle it because it's not really what he feels he should be as a, a Vulcan but is essential to him and and Kirk makes that not only available to him but he almost demands that Spock view that part of himself as beautiful which uh, the two of them together are are men who could very easily disappear into a hole of their own despair I think because they always are are being driven by that lack and that's something that they see as a lack in themselves but together it's almost like completing a circuit and they make each other make sense to each other which is just there's something just so very very beautiful about that you know how can you not want to see them in that way yes and i love that you talk about the acceptance yeah. that they give each other yeah Spock accepts Kirk at the level that he's at, passionate and just way out there. And then Kirk accepts Spock where he's at, right? And they don't try to change each other. They just accept where they are. Exactly. And not only accept, but celebrate. You know, the, the, the two of them are so driven by perfectionism and they demand such high standards and possibly high standards for themselves. And yet the other will look at that kind of worst excess of self-flagellation and they will go, actually, no, you are wonderful. And what you do is wonderful. And it is perfect to me exactly as it is. Stop beating yourself up while also recognizing that beating themselves up is kind of just part of who they are. So it's not like they're ever going to change, but they're just going to be there to pick up the pieces for each other. Yes, they are just perfect partners, yes. I think, yes. in that respect. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's satisfying as sort of putting the last piece of a jigsaw puzzle into place. You just see, yeah, they fit together so perfectly and so satisfyingly. Speaking of putting pieces together, your story, Spice, it's huge. I think we're talking 55 chapters. Yeah. <laughs> now, for someone who has never read Spice before, how would you describe that story to someone who's never read that before? Oh, that's an excellent question. What I'm trying to do with it, I suppose, is to fill in those lost years between the end of the original series and the beginning of the motion picture, because something clearly goes very, very wrong for the the, so the Kirk Spock dyad in that time. You know, in my opinion, it is that they finally acted on their feelings before Spock was ready, because Spock is not ready before the events of the motion picture. I know there is there is some official novels that, that are dedicated to that, but you know, I don't buy that because it doesn't involve any Kirk and Spock in love. But it really does sort of seek to understand how they go from being clearly in love and, and slightly tortured about it to finding themselves at the beginning of the motion picture and the, the novelization of the motion picture which has both of them just, I mean, that that film doesn't get a lot of love. I think the only way you can love it is if you see it as part of the the sort of the Kirk-Spock relationship evolution. They are both in so much pain at the start of it. Well, what on earth happened to put them both in that pain? What on earth happened for Spock to, to sort of pursue something that strips himself entirely of his own humanity? He was just starting to kind of come to grips with the idea that maybe it might be okay to be a little bit less Spock by the end of the original series. And by the time we get to the motion picture, he's he's just falling apart inside. And, and Kirk, there's just something so hungry in his expression at the start of the movie. So what happens between that? Well, Spice wants to know. And Spice has some clear ideas about what that might be. And it also incorporates a slightly fetishy <laughs> um, uh, sort of sexual kink, which turns out to be probably more of an explanation for what's going on between them than than necessarily might fully be implied by the novelization. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure the novelization had this in mind, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, probably not. But <laughs> we can forgive that, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> 
to be some artistic license, hasn't there? <laughs> yes, exactly. That is actually one of my favorite things about Spice, what you just mentioned about filling in those years between the end of Star Trek and the start of the motion picture. I remember, even as a little kid, watching the motion picture, and my favorite part of the entire movie is that scene in Sick Bay yeah. where you know, Spock is lying there and Kirk just comes running up to his bio bed and grabs his hand. Yes. And even as a little kid, I understood the momentous occasion of that moment. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what is this? What are they doing? I don't know, but I like it. It's important. So you're right that after reading Spice, everything that happens in the motion picture makes so much more sense to me. Thank you. And was like, oh, this just fills in everything. I love it. (laughs) Well, thank you. I'm I'm delighted to hear that. Um, Some of the the comments I had on it just sort of are sort of, oh, this is my headcanon now. And I'm like, yes, that's what I was going for. New headcanon. I have placed it in your head. (laughs) Yes. And once it's in there, you will not get it out. But not that you would want to. No. Because to date, this is honestly one of the most ambitious things that I've ever seen in terms of length and scope. I think I mentioned it's 55 chapters and they're not shorty chapters either. Like These are beautifully long chapters. My beta readers all deserve medals for going through that. Yes. Yes, I agree. I agree. (laughs) Because I think you said this project took you three, three and a half, four years, somewhere in that. It was in that region, yeah. Yeah, so it just kind of started off from this simple prompt and then grew legs and became this huge project. You know, the real thematic arc of the story, I think, is perfectly encapsulated in the lines that Spock repeats several times in this story. He keeps saying over and over, Jim, captivity is a matter of perspective. And he says that multiple times in the story. So I was just wondering, how did this work develop, you know, from that prompt to the story it became? Like, what was the process for that? Oh, well, I think I just started writing and it got really, really long. (laughs) I had lots of different ideas in my head when I started. And I love that you've pulled that out. There wasn't a deliberate sort of desire at the start to explore that theme, but when I started, when it, it sort of found its way in there, it was one of those things where it just, my, my brain just went, oh, that makes sense. And for me, I think a lot of what they are talking about when they are discussing things related to their relationship, however one conceives that to be in the in the original series, it does feel there's, there is a lot of kind of metaphorical kind of framing it as though they are imprisoned by certain norms of their respective societies and their respective expectations of themselves. And I think by the time we get to the motion picture, that captivity has, it's its almost kind of physically manifested itself in both their lives, not necessarily through choice, although Spock does have a certain level of, of investment to undergo the process of colon R. I mean, he has kind of voluntarily put himself into captivity of his of his own devising there. Whereas Kirk has almost been kind of drawn into a captivity that he would, he can't, he feels like he can't resist because he is enthralled to Starfleet. Starfleet is his life. And what Starfleet decides to do with him, he is going to go with that. But he has been almost held captive on Earth. And then, of course, there's the idea that they've been sort of held captive by their feelings as well and their reaction to their feelings. So it's only one of, of sort of a number of different themes that, that sort of organically find their way in there. If if you'd asked me at the start of writing, was I going to go down that path? I wouldn't have a, had a notion that I was going to do that. I had a very vague idea that it was going to be at, at the stage three different sections. It turned into four as I was writing it and I knew it was going to start at the end of the original series and end with after the events of the motion picture what happened in between was basically the two of them just being themselves and and me kind of trying to capture that in in any way shape or form in words i love that because i had a feeling that when you started with this project it probably evolved into what it became along the way. So it's super cool to hear how it started and then how throughout the writing process, you really had these moments of epiphany and, 
hey, I think this would work really well here and there. And just the different arcs and thematic elements that come through here are just phenomenal. So the way that you did it, so good. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, there's one chapter in particular, I forget which one it is, but it's when they're on Earth and Laurie storms into a, a meeting in a terrible mood. I didn't know she was going to do that when I started writing that chapter. <laughs> she had a mind of her own. <laughs> and, and and that that happened. And from that, I had to work out why she was in a bad mood. I had the options. I can either go back and, and try and sort of unpick this from the chapter, but it feels like it's supposed to be there. Or I can work out why she's in a bad mood. And that's where the whole Klingon thing came in. I didn't know that was going to happen at the start. <laughs> Oh, that's so interesting. She just came through like you channeled her and she's like, tell this story. I loved that character. I didn't expect to love her as much as I did. It it, it almost, I mean, it was sort of painful knowing by the end of it that, you know, canonically she dies and she dies in the most offhanded way, which um, that's one of the things that really kind of bothers me about the motion picture is that, you know, this is supposed to be a major character and oh, whoops, she's dead. Whereas that that character, the more I wrote her, the more I loved her, and I was just, oh, still I'm still sad that she didn't get to see them get together because she shipped them so hard. She knew, <laughs> she knew, and she wanted them to be together. By the time she realised that she and Kirk couldn't be together, she was so desperate to see him happy with Spock, and then she never got to see it happen. Yeah, and you know, I did put a question about Lori in here, but I'm so glad that you brought her up because the first time that I read this story, I was so impressed by the Lori character because in so many other stories, when you have the two main characters who are not getting together for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. and then a third character is introduced as the new love interest, a lot of times that character is villainized in the story somewhat. And made to be some sort of archetype for, I don't know, abuse, (laughs) if you will. And you didn't do that here. You made her into this three-dimensional, living, breathing person that we could have empathy for and that Kirk had a lot of respect for. Even though their relationship doesn't end up breaking out in the end, you know that he did love her on some level. He had a lot of respect for her. And she loved him, too, because in the end, she just really wanted to see him happy and living his truth, even if that wasn't with her. Yeah, I don't think there is a lot of love for Laurie in KS fandom for obvious reasons. The canonical one that he married, and it's not Spock. But like I said, I mean, I, I didn't want to not do her justice as a character. I just I didn't know how I was going to evolve her. But the more I wrote her, the more I got a sense of who she was. I think as well, um, you know, by my own sort of patchy relationship history, I have been her in the past. I have been the, the person who comes in um, and, and sort of tries to heal the broken heart. You know, all, all he needs to know is is that he's he's loved and he's worthy of love. And this other person who, who hurt him has made him feel as though he's not worthy of love. Well, I will give him my love and then he will he will heal. And that never works out <laughs> the way you hope it's going to. So I could feel a lot of empathy for her in that respect. In that she is just she is just a wonderfully warm, empathetic person in, in my sort of vision of her. Because she's the one that he marries. She is the one that we, we know that, that he marries. And yes, he is missing his Spock at that point and And he's not marrying her for a healthy reason. And ultimately, canonically, they don't end up lasting more than a a year. Although Roddenberry has some interesting ideas about what marriage is going to look like by the time this all happens. But, (laughs) you know, they had a year contract. Well, actually, in some ways, I think that sounds like a great idea. In other ways, no, not so much. But (laughs) but there has to have been something. Kirk doesn't keep company with people who are not stimulating to him in some way. And any time he's kind of, he, he has any kind of romantic dalliances there's generally i mean except for the ones that just don't come off for me at all on on screen um what what's that robot from series three it's like what what is this but series three anyway that's the less said about series three the better in a lot of ways <laughs> Spock's brain. Hmm. yeah lots of fun but what <laughs> uh, yeah but, but i could only watch that episode once it was too weird for me <laughs> so strange There's such a lot of very odd stuff going on in Series 3. You can definitely see that Roddenberry had lost control by that point. But, but, you know, the the women who are important in Kirk's life are strong, intelligent women. 
And it would make no sense to me that, that the woman he ultimately marries would be anything other than that. So there is something that, that drew him to her. And I wanted to kind of explore what that was. And I just, I fell in love with her as a character as I was writing her. <laughs> yeah, no, I fell in love with her reading her. And I was just so touched the way you handled her character. It was so beautifully done. I'm delighted. Thank you. One of the other things that I really love about Spice is that you give us really deep insight into the different perspectives of the characters. So we get a good look at Kirk's perspective on what's happening during this time frame. And we also get really unique perspectives on Spock's mindset, his frame of mind and where he's coming from. So I was just wondering, where did you draw the inspiration for showing us those different perspectives? I think I just watch a lot of these guys on the, on screen. Part of the appeal of writing fan fiction for me is the ability to do that sort of deep dive character stuff. Because if you're writing sort of science fiction and, and you're sort of, you, a lot of your time is, is spent on world building there. Whereas when you're writing fan fiction, you don't need to do any of that. So you can do that, that real character driven stuff. I was, I think it's probably just being unhealthily obsessed with them. And just the more I would write them, the more this would suggest itself to me. And a lot of, I think, what I was doing with Spice was trying to kind of answer the questions for myself. So really, you know, the, the, the two voices, I wanted to try, I really wanted to try and keep them authentic if I possibly can. And authentic as I would understand them, I suppose that my authenticity is not going to be the same as everybody else's. But just what I would understand them to be and just sort of let them sort of progress from there. I always had a vague idea going into the chapter what I was going to accomplish with that chapter and where I was going to be by the end of it. But beyond that, it was all very much, right, boys, off you go. Let's see where this takes us. And I, I don't know. I mean, that's really, I suppose the only answer I can give to that question is unhealthy obsession, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> if that's where it comes from, that is A-okay with me. And me. Because, <laughs> because I get it. <laughs> you know, I think that I loved both perspectives equally because you, I, I feel like you give equal time between Spock and Kirk. I tried to, yeah. Yeah, which is beautiful. Now, one of the things that struck me the most at first was the unique perspective coming from Spock's point of view, because you start him off in the story in a memory, a childhood memory. Yes. Right? With his mother. And as the story progresses, we start to realize that his whole perspective on why he thinks that this relationship with Kirk will not work is rooted in his childhood experiences watching his parents' marriage, yeah. his mother who's human and his father who's Vulcan. Yeah. And from that childhood perspective, he made connections and decisions based on faulty information yeah. because the things that we see and observe as children aren't necessarily the truth. Yeah. And I thought that was so profound. Oh, oh thank you. I do think that Spock has some serious daddy issues <laughs> and some right? serious mommy issues as well. And bless him. I mean, Sarek is, is one of my favorite characters. I just, he is just so austere and he's you know he's not a nice man at all but he is so driven by his own sense of integrity and his own sense of of moral rectitude and just that relationship between him I mean when we see their relationship on screen it's chilling and you know Spock is clearly when anytime he's he's on scene with, with uh, on screen with Sarek to me he's clearly the little boy trying desperately to get his father's approval but who has told himself that he doesn't need it anymore and there's you know there is definitely an anger there the two of them are just at, at loggerheads so much of the time and Amanda although you know in the, in the original series I'm not getting quite as much of it in the original series but by the time we're into the voyage home and uh, Amanda she is so much warmer and and more accepting of her humanity and Spock's humanity, well, driving Spock's humanity really and, and insisting upon Spock's humanity, that that kind of relationship, again, you know, what was going on for a little boy Spock? It can't have been anything good or healthy. You know, he must have been so alone a lot of the time. And, he, you know, he, he, he talks about it quite a lot and, uh, obliquely and, and otherwise. But that aloneness, you know, he hasn't got anybody that he can kind of cross-reference this stuff with. For a start, there is nobody like him anywhere else in the universe. 
So how on earth does he know what is biologically right and biologically normal for him other than what he wants to be biologically right and biologically normal because he's determined to be as Vulcan as he possibly can to start off with? But, you know, this this poor kid, his parents aren't talking about this stuff with him. His parents have just got all these expectations of him, but without any kind of roadmap for what that might look like. And, you know, who does he have that he can talk to? You know, if you take the animated series as any kind of canon, which I do when it suits my purposes, he is a very lonely little boy determined to to prove himself in some way. So it does make sense that he would see a lot and interpret a lot as an analytical child and a fiercely intelligent child, but without any kind of guidance as to what's actually going on. And, you know, fiercely private species. I bet they don't talk that much about sex. I would imagine not. Yeah. I think you even mentioned in your story that he never asked Amanda, right? No. About her relationship with Sarek. So that was never discussed, never talked about. And you're right. Like, he didn't have anyone to talk to. Yeah. Growing up, he didn't really have friends. His parents were a little standoff (laughs) when it came to stuff like that. His fiance hates him, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She was no help whatsoever. No. So he's left to his own devices as far as building his own sense of worldview, right? Yeah. So there's this phrase in the story, and I believe this is a Vulcan phrase. And forgive me because I have no idea how Vulcan is supposed to be pronounced, but that phrase, is it Kadith? Oh, yeah. Kadith, I think it is. I have no idea how Vulcan's pronounced either. Yeah, no idea how it's pronounced, but essentially it means what is is. And I thought that that was so profound for the um, philosophical evolution of this story, because essentially we are watching in slow motion as Spock realizes that his perspective may be wrong. Yeah. Right. The worldview he's built might be wrong and it may need to be dismantled. And so his whole idea of what is is changes. Yes. Yeah. Through the story, right? It doesn't have to be static. Yeah, and it's such a Vulcan phrase, you know, that that very logical, well, we cannot do anything to change the, the fundamental reality of anything. But what is actually reality? I mean, that's, right. that's a bit more profound than I was trying to go with Spice, but reality is, is, is shaped by the person perceiving it. Yes. And I just, I love the flexibility of that phrase as well. I think Vulcans... That there's a lot going on there that they don't want to discuss and they don't want people to know is going on. And, and I think it is a very usefully flexible phrase that masquerades as being kind of very inflexible because, you know, what is changes according to the perception of the person observing it. Absolutely. And that came through so strongly from Spock's side that to me, it was such a compelling part of the storytelling here. Because I've had so many instances in my own life where I had to really step back from a situation and realize that the way I was perceiving it was 100% off. And as soon as I allowed myself to evolve in my thinking and change my perspective, everything changed. And I feel like that's exactly what happens here with Spock. When he gives himself permission to dismantle the worldview that he's built over the years, then something magical happens. And I love that. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. You know, the story felt so personal to me for that reason, as well as for the perspective that you give us from Kirk's side of things. Because with Kirk, he's dealing with all of these crazy human emotions involving loss and growing older and the grief that we sometimes feel when those things are happening. And I was just wondering, how did you get that so perfect oh, well, from Kirk's perspective? Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, see, for me, I think Kirk and Spock both have the same kind of issues. It's just that Spock is really aware that he's trying to suppress his emotions. Kirk suppresses the hell out of his emotions, but tends to think of himself as as being someone who doesn't do that. And I think we do see quite a lot of him. He's okay with anger. He knows what he's doing with anger and he knows how to channel anger. But any of the other negative emotions, he can't really deal with them. I mean, for me, one of the most profound moments, emotionally effective moments in in any sort of Star Trek canon is that sequence at the beginning of The Search for Spock, where he he walks past Spock's empty chair on the Enterprise and that sort of trembling hand sort of reaches out and grips the, the top of the chair. And the look of just 
it's so tightly controlled. I mean, people who give Shatner grief for his acting have not actually interrogated his acting. When he is giving that really tightly controlled emotional, I am not going to go here, I cannot cope with this level of pain that Kirk does, it's absolutely devastating to watch. And for me, that's kind of integral to Kirk. You know, if it's anger, he can deal with it. Anything else other than that, it just has to be shut down and turned into anger, if at all possible. And that kind of brought Kirk together and made Kirk make sense to me. I I find him so, because again, he's under all of these particular pressures that in a lot of ways he's brought upon himself. He is the golden boy. He is the youngest captain in Starfleet history. I believe he goes on, does he become the youngest admiral in Starfleet history? I think he did, yeah, yeah. Because they promoted him pretty quick. Yeah, he is the golden boy who is absolutely... You know, the, the prodigy and the, the one that, you know, is, is this sort of the shining hope of Starfleet. And so much pressure then sort of becomes invested in him and in his own in, in sort of understanding of himself. People die if he gets it wrong. That's, that's as stark as that. And he is so invested in his, his position as, as being sort of the protector of his people and, and the protector of, of sort of this, this idea of morality that he has that, that's, you know, this, this sort of, all-encompassing how things could be in the universe that if he he does not permit himself to get things wrong either which is extremely limiting in so many ways you know the, the sort of the damage that he does to himself in terms of his his own expectations of himself and that's what sort of made Kirk make sense to me and that sort of that sort of flowed from there I suppose that he is very much a prisoner of his emotions and as much as Spock. It's just that Spock recognises it and Kirk doesn't. Which is so interesting because you would think it would be the other the way other around. The other way around, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because Kirk at least allows himself to admit he has emotions. Except the ones that he doesn't want to deal with. <laughs> exactly. You know, one of the things that I loved about his perspective was his idea of his own identity in a way because I feel like his identity was really wrapped up in two things, right? It was wrapped up in his longing for Spock and it was also so wrapped up in his being captain of the Enterprise. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. And it is being captain of the Enterprise as opposed to any other function in Starfleet. That's not what he's going to tell himself. As far as he's concerned, it's Starfleet that is his identity, but it's not. It's the Enterprise. It's not. Yeah. Yes. And that longing yeah. for that ship and his crew and yeah. just being out there. I think at some point in the story, you describe Kirk as having a wanderer's soul. I feel like that's what he is. Yes. Yes. That spoke to me. I was like, yes, that's exactly how I would describe him. Yeah. I mean, there's no such thing as home for, for Kirk, except where the, the family that he's made for himself exists. And I, I, I know I think of, of Kirk as being somebody for whom family is a very troubled concept as well. You know, he has this brother that just has always struck me as, as a complicated relationship with, with the brother, you know, the, the brilliant brother that is doing brilliant things. But, you know, they're, they're obviously not close. And the, sort of the sense of that family being slightly fragmented and maybe not exactly as Kirk would want it to be, but family for him is Enterprise and it's the, the family that he creates around him and the Enterprise is so fiercely protective of, of all of them and why the love sort of flows very naturally from there. Yes, and I don't think he even realized at first how it affected him emotionally when the Enterprise comes in for its retrofit and they are done with their first five-year mission and he sits there and watches all of his senior crew members get shot out into all different like areas of Starfleet. Some of them go to other planets. Some of them go to other star systems. It's just his whole family is scattered, just broken apart. Yeah, scattered around. And I don't think he understands at first the level of loss. Well, because it's, it's, it's one of those emotions that he doesn't want to deal with. Right. Doesn't yes. do loss. <laughs> Kirk doesn't let himself do loss. Um, no. He, he just, yeah, it's too painful and he can't, he can't focus it into something productive. So he, he can't he can't accept, he can't connect with loss because if he connects with loss, then he's really going to feel it. And that's intolerable. Right. Exactly. I feel like in the story, he just kind of pours himself into work yeah. and makes sure that he's so wrapped up in what he's doing that he doesn't have time yeah. to confront these feelings. Yeah. 
and these, you know, emotions and things like that. He stays late at work. He drinks. He just does whatever. Totally healthy response to it. Nothing unhealthy about that at all, Kirk. Yeah. Right, right, right. No unhealthy coping mechanisms no, to see here, folks. Absolutely nothing to see here. <laughs> well, I do want to tell the audience that this is a slow burn. 55 chapters worth of beautiful storytelling. <laughs> well, thank you. It does have a happy ending. So I know that some people go into it and they're like, what is this? Oh my God, what's happening? But I just want to assure everyone that it is worth it from beginning to end because it gets dicey and emotional and you're just sitting there going, why are they handling it this way? Why? And you just kind of want to strangle Kirk and Spock a little bit. And possibly I'm EO too, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> But by the end, everything just gets resolved and clicks into place and is so beautiful. So I assure you all, it is worth the effort of going in there and checking out Spice. Now, Aimeo, this story has been posted on AO3 since, well, you started working on it what year? Do you remember? Oh, late 2011, I think it must have been. Okay, so 2011. And then didn't you finished about it finished late 2014 2014 that's what I thought okay so it's been up there for a long time I imagine you've gotten a lot of responses and reactions to this story and I was wondering if you could tell us what have been some of your favorite reactions to the story oh I I when I was posting it I'm so disconnected from fandom at the moment I read every single comment I just don't always get a chance to reply to them anymore but when I was posting it I was actively involved in in sort of chatting and, and, and talking the comments. I loved discussing canon in the comments. And I just, I absolutely, that was one of my most favorite things about it was people would read it and go, oh, this has made me think of such and such a thing. And then we would go and we'd have this big, long conversation about it in the comments section. Um, and I would get new perspectives and hopefully I would, I would convert people to my way of thinking because, you know, what, what is the point of writing 275,000 words if you're not going to try and convert people to your way of thinking? I just I love that and I love that kind of immediacy of fan fiction as well where you are you know you're you're posting a chapter and people are reading it and then sort of talking to you about it in real time almost it's just it, it I just I love that you don't get that from publishing in in sort of journals or or wherever you don't get that in the same way at all just the the connection with people who are reading your work in fan fiction is just it's wonderful. I love it so much. It's an interactive experience for sure. Yes, uh, yes, it is. It really is. And you can sort of you can get kind of isolated as a writer, and and you can sort of get disconnected from the reaction to your writing, but not in fan fiction. Not if you're doing it and and you're connecting with people, they're going to let you know, and it's just brilliant. I love that. Oh, I love that answer. That's beautiful. Now. I imagine that over the years, you've had a lot of time to read other people's fan fiction as well. In between writing your own works, I was wondering, who are your top three fan fiction authors? I only get three. I can I possibly <laughs> I know, I know. three. Um, oh, dear. Well, I mean, the I, I have to say where it all started to come together for me was when I read Killers, Turning Point and Full Circle. Again, addressing the lost years between the end of the mission and the, the start of the motion picture. And, and then I read her Bitter Glass. And oh, I don't know. I don't know if you've read Bitter Glass. It is just it will rip your heart out, stomp on it. And just you'll never be the same again after Bitter Glass. I've never been able to read it a second time. It's still an absolutely monumental, spectacular piece of fan fiction. So I've got to say Killa, obviously. Um, Jenna Sinclair. Another one of those sort of um, absolute bastions of original, uh, original series, Kirk Spock fan fiction. I loved her stuff. I just loved her stuff. And there's so many of them. Oh, goodness me. Well, Talara, obviously. Talara, if you ever are in the mood for really complex and magnificent Kirk Spock poetry, and also some really great hot fan fiction as well, she's fantastic for that. But she has... I know there's a, a sort of a throwaway line somewhere in Spice about the um, 11 beat poetry that you're supposed to recite whenever you are, you're, you're victorious in uh, Susmana. And I just pulled that out of nowhere and she went and wrote it. <laughs> she wrote it and it's wonderful and I love it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And it is 11. And she, she's so good at that. She is such a, an absolutely fantastic understanding of poetry and beats and cadence and everything. I don't write anything in the, 
the Abrams verse at all or haven't yet. Well, have I wrote one thing in the Abrams verse? I tell a lie. But I read a lot in the Abrams verse, or I did when I was involved in fan fiction. Um, there's some stuff there that is as good as anything I have ever seen on screen. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this name right, but Separus or Separus. This there's a couple of stories about that sort of sit in this, this very lengthy period between the end of the first Abrams first movie and then the next one, which dear me. The less said about that, the better, even though it has Benedict Cumberbatch in it. The less said about this film, the better. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I will tolerate a lot. But mm, um, <laughs> but there's a, and I genuinely wanted War Games to be the basis for the second Abrams first movie because it is so good. Oh, goodness. A lot of AU stuff from Abrams first is fantastic. There's Leave No Soul Behind by Who Chick. It's just wonderful. Take Refuge in What You Know by Corpus Invictus is just, have you? Oh, that one I know and oh. Yeah. uh, It's it's so good. (laughs) So I just, you know, there's so much fantastic stuff out there that is as good as anything that has made it onto official screen or page. I know that Twitter was alive with this really bad take on fan fiction. Was it last week, the week before? 2021 is sort of dissolving into itself for me at the moment. But um, this this idea that, you know, fan fiction actively teaches people to write worse. I'm like, what? You have not read enough fan fiction, my friend. There is some fan fiction out there that is absolutely fantastic stuff. And it's better than the stuff that's getting published in canon. And that perfectly segues into my last question of the day, because I agree with you that there are a lot of sources out there that want to disparage fan fiction and say it's no good and... We're just a bunch of silly heads, like reading and writing it and all that. Why do you think fan fiction is worth writing and reading? Well, at the most basic level, you know, fan fiction is about love. Fan fiction only exists where love exists. The idea that somebody would love a world or some characters enough to actually go and tell the next part of that story just says that the creators have done something really spectacular and really wonderful. Apart from anything else, you know, if for anybody that wants to write, there is that immediacy as well between the creation and the consumers of the creation, which is, I mean, it's, it's, it's hardly, it's not exactly unique to fan fiction, but you find that in very, very few other media. And the, the, the feedback that a writer can get, particularly a writer that is starting to cut their teeth and is maybe, maybe taking their first steps on a writing journey, it's, it's a fantastic way of, of exploring the craft. And just, you know, for, for the, the things that canon just gets wrong when you're just like, canon, no, bad canon, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, somebody go and fix this. I need fix it, fix. Please go out and write this, the, the, the fixing bit for this for me, please. So when canon gets frustrating, there's always fan fiction to make it all right again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, it's just a way of sharing love. I mean, surely the world needs that. It's a way of, of people who love something sharing that love with other people who love it. Sharing that love and just allowing us to get into that space where we can just enjoy something that we really, really love and connect with. Absolutely, yeah. And I love fan fiction's ability to share things that characters are going through with the rest of us. I had an author the other day say to me, you know, sometimes authors make characters go through situations or things that we ourselves are going through, the readers, Mm, right? Yeah. We read that story and we connect to it on this deep personal level because it is talking about the thing that we're going through and that can be so meaningful. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That connection is just priceless to me. Yeah, I think anybody that can make that connection and you know what, that's, that's, that can only do good in the world, surely. Absolutely. And that's what we need, right? Right. More good in the world. <laughs> yes. Especially here for 2021, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so far it's 2020 on steroids. So, you know. I agree. <laughs> 2020 <laughs> 2.0, right? <laughs> but I'm still knocking on wood here. You can hear me knocking yeah. on my desk that it's still going to be and turn out to be a pretty good year. Yes, Better it is. than 2020. Speaking so, into existence, it's going to be a good year, this one. Exactly. Exactly. We'll make it so. Yes, right? absolutely. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Talking of talking of that, I have to, have to give a massive, massive shout out to one of my other 
I can't believe it because it's not KS. Milo Owen writes fantastic next generation fic, um, uh, Riker Picard. I totally forgot to say that and that's a dreadful thing to have forgotten because she's fabulous and I love her work. Oh, beautiful. Good, good. Yeah, I, I want to expand here eventually and I'll get authors in who do Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, yes. Discovery, all that stuff because that's the great thing about Star Trek is even though we all love the original series, there's so much more than that yeah. in the Star Trek universe that exactly. we can expand into. So, Yes. Yes. It's so exciting. So, well, Aimeo, I know that you are taking a break from fan fiction and the fandom world at the moment. And the reason why is completely understandable. But we await your return with bated breath. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm really excited for that. And you just take your time. And when you're ready to jump back in, we will be here. Brilliant. I have so many more stories I want to tell in this universe. Yes, and we are here for them. Do you have any last words for us today? Oh, it just it's been an absolute joy to talk about Kirk and Spock. I've absolutely loved every minute of this. Thank you so much for indulging me in one of my major obsessions. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Folks, check out her stories on AO3. Give her some love. If you'd like to reach out to me, I can be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.